our text this morning as we look at the last of Paul's questions for us is Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, and we'll start in verse 31 as we uh, finish up these questions um, that Paul brings us. And he brings us to what I think most people would consider the very heart of the gospel, and that is love. God's love, Christ's love. And, you know, um, you know we, we talk about it so much. You know, for most of us, if I ask you, what's the first Bible verse you memorized? How many of you would say John 3.16 was right up there at the very beginning, you know? For God so loved the world. It's just become this, this uh, that verse. Uh, that, that it's, we see this as the heart of the gospel. Um, but what does it mean to us? What does the love of God, the love of Christ, mean to us? How does the, the love of Christ equip us to face the world? How does this love enable us to live in these times, in these difficult times? How does, how does the love of Christ enable us or equip us to live in the face of disappointment and trials? Or does it? Are we supposed to just muddle through, trudge on, to get through it the best we can? We're just holding out, we're just, we're just holding out to the end? Or can the love of Christ help us to live victoriously? And what does it even mean to live victoriously? What does that look like to live victoriously? I suspect, like so many things in God's kingdom, a victorious life would look somewhat different than we would expect. If we described a, a victorious life in Christ, you know, I, I suspect that we have a tendency to take the, the world's definition of victory and apply it even in the Christian life, and it would look somewhat different. If I ask you to name Christians that you feel like lived a victorious life in Christ, who would be on that list and why? And I think that, um, that, that if we were to look at their lives, not many of us would admire that and envy the life that they lived, would we? So what does that mean, the love of Christ for us today? Romans 8, 31. I'm going to read through 39. We're not going to get through all this, but all this sort of fits together as we discuss the love of Christ. But uh, we're all going to uh, kind of begin with this today. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, 
nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are the questions that Paul had to consider. We looked through these questions, these seven questions Paul's laid out here. And he said, you need to consider this. In light of, of, of this uh, of Romans, of a lot of this golden, the golden chain, in light of who God is and what God's done, you need to consider these questions. You need to ask yourself daily, what then should we say to these things? What, 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 what does this mean to us? How do, we, how do we look at the world? How do we watch the news? How do we interact with the world because of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? When we face up with trials and troubles, nothing or no one can stand against us. God's will will be accomplished in our life. So when God has said that he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, nothing can stop that. He who did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us, how will not also graciously give us all things? God has already done the greatest thing, the hardest thing. He's already given us his Son. Won't he also give us all the lesser things? You know, we, we, God's, Jesus Christ has already died for us. And yet we wonder, God, can you help us out with my family? Jesus Christ has already died for us. But yet we wonder, God, can you help me out with my job? I, I'm, I'm really worried about that. As if that somehow is harder than him dying on the cross for my sins. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall, who shall come up to you and, and accuse you against with all the, 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 the things that are true things, not false? We're not talking about the, the false. The things that we're guilty of. Who shall bring any charge against us? He says, no one. God has declared us not guilty. He's justified us. And last week we talked about who is to condemn. And we said not that it's not that there's no condemnation because God has just decided not to punish us. It's not that God just said, hey, we're not going to worry about it. Yeah, you sin, we're not going to worry about it. No, there's no condemnation because that condemnation for us has already been placed upon Christ. And Christ is now seated at the right hand of the God ever interceding for us. And this is our hope and our joy. And our response to this is worship. The last questions that Paul has us considered this time deal with the love of Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. It is the agape of Christ. This agape love. And, and very quickly I want to point out that in the Greek it could actually be either way. And there are some commentaries that take it both ways. So it, some commentators mean who shall separate us from our love of God, our love of Christ. As if, as if Paul's asking, so what is it that can stop you from loving Christ? Or, 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 and that word for who could also be what. So who or what is it that can stop you from loving Christ? Or it could mean who or what can separate us from Christ's love of us. And the Greek could be either one. But I think it's pretty clear given the context that, that Paul is speaking about Christ's love for us. That, that, that he, this is what he's talking about. And I heard a great phrase about this yesterday. I actually read it in a book. And it said that uh, uh, a text without a context is a con. You ever heard that? 
a text without a context is a con. So, so, so in the context of this, it's clear he is talking about, about Christ's love for us. And, and even in verse 37, there's no ambiguity in this. That he's talking about his love for us. So who can separate us from Christ's love of us? What can separate from Christ's love for us? But it's interesting that in this treatise on the gospel, that Paul has not mentioned the love of God or the love of Christ more. It's almost like now that he's mentioned it, you know, it's funny, as I started studying this, looking at it, I, I got to this point, I thought, huh, why hasn't that been more of a central theme in this? When you think back on Romans, it's not mentioned a whole lot. Matter of fact, it's only been mentioned once before, and it's in chapter 5. It was like suddenly I realized, and I had to go back and look, so where else is the love of God or the love of Christ mentioned in Romans? And I actually had to do a search to find it, because it's, I thought you, you would think that if Paul's going to talk about the gospel, that a central part of this would be the love of Christ, the love of God. But it's not until this point. And, and it's certainly implied, but he doesn't really mention it by name. But if you look in, in chapter 5, so let's go back in Romans, just, just two or three pages. In chapter 5, and I'll start reading in verse 3, and he actually kind of gets into it in verse 5. This only other, that's the other place up to this point that he mentions the love of God and the love of Christ. So Romans 5, starting in verse 3, Paul says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And, and so this is, this is the, the first time since that time that Paul's mentioned love. And I don't think it's any coincidence that just like our passage this morning, Paul mentions God's love as he's talking about suffering. I don't think that's a coincidence, do you? That he starts off with this, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, and when, as soon as Paul starts talking about suffering, it brings him, brings him to the subject of God's love. It's almost like those two, that, that those two tied together. And he says, why does hope not put us to shame? Here we are in the midst of this suffering, the midst of these trials, and why does hope not put us to shame? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. And that God showed his love for us while we were still enemies, while we still hated him, while we still, while we still were, uh, we still did not love him. He loved us. Here, here though, love, Christ's love moves to the spotlight. It moves to the place of preeminence for us to look at. And I believe why, the reason why at this time Paul said we need to really look 
at Christ's love. We need to study Christ's love. We need to talk about it. It's because it really doesn't fit our world, does it? It doesn't fit our 21st century, our best life now, understanding the gospel. When we think of Christ's love, there, there's something about it that, that, that it, it doesn't really kind of fit into it. To, to hear that, that, that about, talk about Christ's love and talk about this woman suffering from domestic abuse. Somehow it just doesn't quite fit, does it? To talk about Christ's love and talk about just, just everything going on in the world around us, there's something that this doesn't, this doesn't fit. So you're telling me that God, in all of His infinite wisdom and power, going back to Romans 8, 28, that God, and, and that God's Spirit intercedes for us, and that He searches our heart because He knows our weakness, and, and this God who foreknew us before we were even born, and called us, and predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, and justified us, and intercedes for us, and loves us, and still, people that love Him are suffering. People that love Him, and still, I mean, and, and I would use Pat, for example. Pat, how many months have you been struggling with your eyes? For a year and a half. Still, wearing sunglasses because of the pain. Of the light. How does that fit? I mean, does this does this does this really look like love to you? And of course, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Here's Jesus seated at the right hand of, of the Father. And he's up there and he died, and he's interceding for us. He's in this place of power and authority, and yet still we suffer. How does this fit your idea of love? How does, that, how does that work out to you? I love my children, so I thought I would allow them to suffer some. Does that make sense to you? Good news. Open door. Open door. They, they're talking about the persecution of the church and the martyrs. Open door reported that there were that, that by their count. There was only 4,305 Christian martyrs last year. It was down from the year before. Isn't that good news? How does that feel? I mean, let's be honest. This really doesn't fit our model of love very well, does it? Love is supposed to be sunshine and buttercups, isn't it? You know, I mean, when God loves us, it's all supposed to be great, Jack. I mean, it's, I mean, it's supposed to be just smooth sailing because God loves me, isn't it? You know, isn't this the way we love our kids? We try to make everything as smooth and as comfortable for them as we possibly can. I mean, I'm going to just sit now. I'm going to go home and I'm going to shut off the, all the air conditioning for, for upstairs so I can show them how I love Gabe. Gabe, I'm doing that out of love, okay? Just because I love you. No air conditioning this week. Oh, yeah, that's right. He didn't have air conditioning anyway, so. 
You know, I've seen parents in high school, parents of high school students here, leave work and drive all the way home because their son, or possibly daughter, but the one I'm thinking about, their son uh, forgot their lunch at home. So here they are, they're at work. They get a text from their, from, their, from their kid. They don't want their kid to go hungry. And so their understanding of love means I'm, I'm going to quit whatever I'm doing so that my child doesn't go hungry. I'm going to go home and I'm going to get the food. I'm going to take it to him just so he's comfortable. That's, that's what love looks like, right? Here, here Paul gives us a list. Paul says, you know, we're talking about who shall separate us from the love of God. He gives us a list. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can anything separate us from the love of God? I mean, when you read that, don't you just want to say, well, no, not really, but can we just skip that part? Honestly? I, I would really rather not test this, okay? You know, the this, this church has so struggled with this list of examples of Christ's love that many have questioned and even taken away God's sovereignty over these things. Because we so struggle as a church to read these and to hear these things and how do they fit in this ideal of God's love for us, of Christ's love for us? How do all these fits that, 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 that there's, this, there's this tendency to even question God's sovereignty? Gary Hagen, president of the International Justice Mission, in his podcast on Family Life Today, titled The Fallen Nature of Man, he gave it in November 11, 2010, he asked the question, how can a sovereign God allow such terrible atrocities to occur? And he's talking about the atrocities of the world around him. He said, how can a sovereign God allow all of these atrocities to take place? And then he explains that, that when mankind turned, turned its back on, turns, continuously, turns its back on God, problems like violence and oppression are the end result. It is man's free will that causes these atrocities to occur, not a sovereign God. It's his result. Please note, he really doesn't answer the question, does he? He just says, God didn't do it, it's all men. It's all the free will of men. Everything that happens, it's all the free will of men. It's all our fault. And, and, and he's, please understand, he's not, he's, he's doing this to help us understand because he really, he really wants us to have confidence in the love of God in the midst of all the trials and all the struggles and all the problems. And I'll be honest with you, I think he fails in that. But he's trying. He's, he, he doesn't want to, to, to shake our view of the love of God. He doesn't want that, 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 that our, our confidence that God loves me and he wants to make everything good and right and perfect in my life. So he didn't want us to, to lose that. So he's going to say, well, it's not God who did that. It's these people over here who did that. It, they're, the, they're, the, they're the ones who did that. Not God. But I believe the first thing we must do 
to address the question. Now help us learn how, what does this mean for us? How, how, do, how do we get here? How do we deal with this? Who shall separate us from the love of God? And he starts having this list. I think the first thing we have to do is, is redefine our view of love. See, for us, love is about making us feel good, making us happy. When we say we love someone or, or something, we mean that, that it makes us happy or makes us or gives us a good feeling. You hear it all the time. Well, well, I love this. Well, all that means is this makes me feel good. God's love is so different. As we read earlier in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Biblical love is a sacrificial love. I think about that parent that left work to deliver lunch to the child. Was the parent thinking about what made them feel better about themselves, what would make their lives easier, or what was best for the student? And, and, and you know, we know this. We know the answer. I know the student wouldn't have understood that day that it would have been for their own good. It'd been better for them to go without lunch. They probably would have gotten upset with the parents. They probably would have, would, why didn't you come and bring me the food? Why didn't you do this? But could the parents love enough to do that? It made their life easier. I'll, I'll just leave work. I'll just go leave work. I'll go home. I'll pick up your lunch and bring it to you. Instead of you having to learn to remember your own lunch. But this question really runs smack dab into reality, doesn't it? What does love look like for us? You know, we read about sacrificial love, and yet when we read this list, it looks like we're the ones being sacrificed. Right? You know, and we want to read it and very quickly say, you know, what, you know who or what can separate us from the love of Christ and very quickly and triumphantly say, no one, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But then reality hits. And, and Paul asks these questions. And, and, and it's worth stopping and reading each one of them and thinking about it for just a second. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one, right? Well, what about tribulation? Now, not retribution, not retribulation, not something coming back on you. Tribulation. I mean, when I'm, when I'm going through tribulation, when it's just, and, and I can't see any reason for it, when it's just, it's just, you know, it's, everything's happening and it's just coming on me and, and I'm just dealing with it. Yeah. How do you respond then? How do you deal with that? Tribulation or distress. When you're under distress, when you're under under just just dealing with the life's problems, does this separate you from the love of Christ, the love of God? Am I sure 
that 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 this is going to keep me. That even in the midst of this, this is that I'm going to I'm going to be confident in in God's love for me in the midst of my distress. How about persecution? I just want to love God and serve Him, and I'm getting persecution from it. Am I sure of Christ's love now? You know, there are many of our brothers and sisters in Christ who, who when they get up on a Sunday morning and, and get ready to go to church, they can do so with a fairly comfortable expectation of persecution. That they can just expect it. And yet, Paul asks, who can separate you from the love of Christ? Or nakedness. I'm sorry, or famine. I missed one. Or famine. I'm hungry, and there's nothing. Could you imagine? Here you are, you're, you're starving. To, literally, there's famine. There is nothing to eat. Are you comfortable in God's love at this point? Or nakedness. You've lost your job, your, your means of providing. There's nothing. You, you, got, you, you have nakedness. Nothing. How about now? Are you, how, how are you feeling about God's love for you now? Or sword. Or danger. These threats to my lives. And we, we could add to this list, couldn't we? Riots and COVID, diseases, distresses from my family. Can any of these things separate me from the love of God? Can any of these things shake my confidence in Christ's love for me? Do any of these things shake my confidence in Christ's love for me? And, you know, the, can. Are we sure we could always say, no, no, they wouldn't, they don't, they won't do that. Are we confident? Yeah, we don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Honestly and truly. I mean, it's a hard list, guys. This, this, is, this is not, you know, oh, everything's going to be great. That's what's so funny about it. It's not saying, don't worry about it. Paul gives this list and he says, consider these things. And then he does something really interesting. Paul quotes Psalm 44. Psalm 44. And if, if we were Hebrew, and if we were growing up in a Hebrew church, we probably would hear that and say, um, Paul, I think you meant the wrong verse. You ever, you ever had somebody who, 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 who said, you know, turn to, this, turn to this psalm or turn to this verse? You're thinking, I, I don't think that's the verse they meant. This would definitely be a time you would think, Paul, I, I don't think you really meant this. I want you to turn to Psalm 44. And you know how it is. You want to read in the context. So we're going to start in verse, verse 9. Just sort of to put it in the context of what? Now, it's a long psalm. But I want you to read all this because it's kind of important. So, so, so psalm, psalm 44, starting at verse 9. The psalmist writes... But you, talking about God, but you have rejected us and disgraced us 
and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from our foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy of the avenger. All this has come upon us, and though we have not forgotten you, we have not and have not been false to your covenant, our heart has not turned back, nor are our steps departed from your ways. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or, or spread our hands to a foreign idol, would not God discover this? For he knows the secret of our hearts. Yet for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you, why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Things are not good for the psalmist, are they? Things are bad here. He's in a bad situation. And here the psalm ends. Don't you want to look for that next section? And yet the Lord comes and rescues. Not there. It just ends. It just ends. Where's the hope? Where's the promise? At this time, he can't see it. It doesn't look good going forward. And we want it to look good going forward, don't we? We want it to look good going forward. We want to see things get better. We want to, we want to think about our world, our, our situation, and we want to think that when we get the right man elected, things will get better. We want to look at the situation and say, when, when this happens, it's going to get better. We want resolution. We want things to get really nice here on earth, don't we? We're looking for that, that perfect answer, that perfect legislation, that perfect government. Something's going to happen, and it's going to get better here. But what if it doesn't? What if next week is worse than last week? And the next election is worse than the last election? And the next year is worse than this year? What happens then? Notice where the psalmist ended. His only hope is in the steadfast love of God. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And the interesting thing is, 
There's no hope looking forward, so he looks backwards. Back to Psalm 44. And this time I want to read verses 1 through 7. Put all the context there. Psalm 44, verse 1. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days. In the days of old, you with your own hand drove out the nations. But them you planted, you afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. Not by their own sword did they win the land, nor by their own arm saved them, but your right hand and your arm. God, you're our only hope. You're it. They, they did, they, they, I look back at the past and, 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 and we, we couldn't do anything, but you did, God. You did it all. You, you delivered us by your right hand and by your arm in the light of your face, and you delighted in them. You are my God. You are my King, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. Meditate on this. Meditate on that. Think about this. Think about what God has done. Think about, think about where he, how he has delivered us. Think about how he got us here. And this allows us to stand in the midst of the future, or the midst of, of the day. Our hope, our hope is not that next year we're going to get somebody better elected. Our hope is not even in the fact, and yes, we are to pray, God, change the heart of the legislation. We are. But that's not our hope. Our hope is not this great massive, and I pray that it happens, but my hope is not that God does this great massive revival in, 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 in Washington. If he does, praise God, and, and I hope, you know, but, but our hope is the same God who died on the cross for our sins will see us through every trial. And a, a victorious life is not one in which there are no problems. It's not one in which everything goes well and it's all smooth and, 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 and beautiful. A victorious life is one's walked in faith. And when you're looking, because sometimes, you know, it's easy to say, well, we're just looking for that kingdom which is to come. And we are. That we're going wrong. But only in the fact that it is seeing the one who died on the cross. We're looking forward to that city which is to come, as Carl said, because that's where we see our Savior, that one who paid the price, that one who showed us how much he loved us by dying on the cross. We see him face to face. And you know, when we, when we hear this, the, the news and we get the, the distressing news, you know, it's, I will say, when I hear the news, I cannot then start looking, well, I'm just looking for it to get better. 
You know, it may not. It may not. You know, by God's, by God's grace and, and by His will, it may not. As, as, as Matt said, it may get worse. And will get worse. We know that. We read the end of the book. It gets worse. But we also know who wins. And so we can, we can joyfully walk in the midst of all this. Another quote I read this week. God said, I have learned to kiss the wave that drives me into the walk of ages. I thought that was really good. 